sweethearts. Welcome to Love Letters 2, the podcast dedicated to unexpected and delightful things. I'm Alicia. And I'm Melissa. So glad you're here with us today. Thanks for joining us for our Tuesday episode this week. Melissa, you're going to kick us off this week with your love letter. I sure am. And I think you're going to like this one. This is a very cool woman that none of us really know about. Oh, those are my favorite. Go, go, go. Okay. Dear Lady Muse, Valerie Susan Langdon was born in Devon, England on February 27th, 1852 to a working class family. As a young woman, she apparently had a very adventurous yet undocumented life. At the time that she met her future husband, she was working as a banjo playing barmaid. What? At a casino in London. She claims to have been an actress, but there's not a lot of evidence of this. And a lot of times the word actress was used as a euphemism for other things. So it's debatable how she spent her early years. But once she was married, all bets were off. But none of these things mattered. She caught the eye of her aristocratic future husband, Sir Henry Bruce Muse. He was an heir to one of the wealthiest families in England from a brewery fortune. He was the son of a baron. He, of course, had gone to Eton College and Trinity College and all of those things. Valerie was not the kind of girl he was used to. He was also a few years younger and their worlds were completely different, but he did not care. He saw her playing that banjo and he had to have her. So what happens? They married in secret on October 27th, 1878. Uh Uh-oh. It caused a scandal. So after the secret ceremony, the family still didn't accept her. And nor did most of England's upper class society. But she just really didn't care. And she continued to be herself. She didn't really try to fit in. She didn't try to make them accept her. She just kept on playing that banjo and flaunting her new wealth, which she did well. So to flaunt her extravagant ways, she made sure that her in-laws, who had snubbed her and continued to do so, knew she wasn't embarrassed and didn't care about them. She rode her carriage, which was called a phaeton, a high phaeton, by their house regularly. But she did it in a way that she made sure that not only they noticed, but everyone else noticed too. What did she do? Okay, well, let me, I'm glad you asked. So this carriage high phaeton was sort of the equivalent of a sports car today. So it was showy. And that still wasn't enough for our dear Valerie. So instead of having it pulled by horses, which is what everyone did, she purchased a pair of zebras. (laughs) And so she had her zebras pull her around town. I guess that would make you get noticed. Yeah. Yeah. And she'd go real slowly in front of the in-laws house and in her sports car version of a carriage with her zebras and nobody missed her. Everyone took notice and that's exactly what she wanted. Another way she completely ignored the snubs of the aristocrats was in her enthusiastic pursuit of their country sports. So she dove into stalking, fishing, grouse shooting, as if she were born to it. And the men loved it, which made the women hate her all the more. 
So although she was never fully accepted into high society circles, she certainly still threw a lot of lavish parties for those who would attend. You and I can guess who one of these very high up aristocratic men were that would partake in Lady Mew's hospitality. And he went by the name of uh, Bertie at that time. Oh, that Prince of Wales. He's everywhere. Yep. And he was the Prince of Wales at that time. But even after he became King Edward VII, he still liked his Lady Muse. And a less likely culprit was Winston Churchill. No. Yes. Also attended her parties. So she was extremely eccentric and she was very forward thinking and she attended meetings of the Theosophical Society. Oh, fascinating. Which completely outraged polite society even more. They couldn't believe how much she didn't care about their lack of acceptance. She was truly one of the most glamorous, fun, and forward-thinking people of her time. And she didn't give a rip if you didn't want to be her friend. So when her husband inherited the family title after his father died in 1885, their wealth became even much more vast. And she used it to renovate the family estate, which they moved into. It was called Theobald Palace in Hertfordshire. She set about making this place fabulous. So before we talk about what she did, a few interesting facts about Theobald's palace. It was actually a residence of William Cecil, Lord Burley. Interesting. Yeah, the chief advisor to Elizabeth I, and then Elizabeth I, and then James I of England liked it so much that he acquired it from the Cecil family and added on to it. So the original building, sadly, was demolished in the English Civil War, but then a new Georgian-style mansion was built, and that is where the Muse family always lived. So it didn't take long for Valerie to transform the estate into a virtual playground for her and her friends. She was quite the hostess of the weekend house party, which we all know about. She added an indoor roller skating rink, an indoor swimming pool, Whoa. Her own museum of Egyptian antiquities and a gun room. Oh, okay. But probably the coolest thing she did was in 1887, she convinced her husband to purchase Sir Christopher Wren's Temple Bar from the city of London. And they couldn't transport it as it was, but they relocated the 400 ton structure brick by brick and then recreated a new entrance gate more grand than any other estate in London at the time. She was so delighted with this new addition. It was meticulously reconstructed at the gate of the estate. And then the whole upper chamber was used to entertain guests. And now people really give her the credit for saving that. They think it would have been demolished probably had she not taken that over. She didn't necessarily know that at the time, but it's pretty cool. Okay, they also owned beautiful homes in Wiltshire and Surrey, a chateau in France, a house on Park Lane in London. So she kept herself pretty busy decorating and collecting. Over the course of her life, she offered three portrait commissions to the artist James Whistler, who was very popular and renowned, but had recently declared bankruptcy in 1878 after a really ugly libel lawsuit. She offered these commissions to him because he was bankrupt at the time. One of her Whistler paintings can still be seen at the Frick Museum in New York. 
The third portrait, she complained at having to pose for so long and he shouted at her and she responded, see here, Jimmy Whistler, you keep a civil tongue in that head of yours or I will have someone in to finish these portraits you have made of me. And he lost it and destroyed it. I love how she said, see here, Jimmy Whistler. It wasn't James anymore. It was Jimmy. Her full length portrait known as Arrangement in Black number five, I don't know why number five, showed her, you can look this one up, dressed in a full black dress, a long white fur coat, diamonds everywhere. And this was apparently a favorite of Bertie, Edward VII, and his wife at the time, Princess Alexandra, who saw it in Whistler's studio. But as I said earlier, one of her greatest passions was collecting Egyptian artifacts, and she was a great collector. One of her favorite purchases was an Egyptian mummy still in its coffin. The coffin had an inscription that said that anyone who moved it would die a childless death. And this seemed to be true. Henry and Valerie never had any children, nor did the other people who moved it. In 1911, the mummy was sold to a person in the United States. In order to get it to him, they packed that mummy and coffin up and they shipped it aboard the Titanic. Oh, no. Ah, yes. So we know what happened there. Sadly, Lady Muse was widowed in 1900 when her husband, Sir Henry, was only 44. She was the only person named in his will, which made her one of the wealthiest women in Britain. So she continued to live an eccentric and eventful life with her substantial fortune, but she also used it to help others. But this will go to show you how much snobbery there really was in society then. So during the siege of Ladysmith in the Second Boer War, she was really concerned for the British troops. And so she offered a substantial amount of money to aid in the battle, but the war office refused it. We don't want your money. She said, okay, great. And she purchased six naval cannons herself. Oh, my Lord. And sent them directly to the commander of the Naval Brigade, Sir Hedwith Lambden. So this was not the only time her generosity was rejected. After her own death in 1910, she bequeathed her extensive collection of almost 2,000 Egyptian artifacts to the British Museum. But they said no, too. They didn't want her stuff. Wow. So the items were auctioned. And were purchased by William Randolph Hearst. Whoa. And they found a home at San Simeon. Here's a really interesting fact, and we're getting close to the end here. Upon her death in 1910, Sir Hedworth Lambden, the commander of the Naval Brigade, legally changed his name using a royal warrant to Muse. This was a stipulation she had put in her will for him to inherit any of her things. And he said, sure, I'll change my name. So I'm thinking maybe after she had donated those cannons, maybe there was a little bit of a romance between the two of them. But who knows? Whatever the truth is, she was one cool lady. So here's to you, Valerie, Lady Muse. You are one of the most colorful and controversial characters in London's history. You scandalized high society and charmed a king, and you kept playing your banjo all the while. Well done. She sounds like a fascinating lady. Fascinating. I would love to have seen her riding around London being pulled by zebras. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to do another story with a little bit of banjo in it, too. See you on the other side. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Alicia, you have kept your love letter a secret from me, but you have said it involves a banjo. I didn't know who you were doing. All I heard was the word banjo, which naturally inspired my love letter to this week. Dear the Rainbow Connection. Oh, I would have never guessed, but I love it already. Has there ever been a better banjo in a song? Has a frog ever given a more stellar performance? The Rainbow Connection, the simple song written for the opening scene in 1979's The Muppet Movie, has captivated us for decades now. Originally written by Paul Williams and Kenneth Asher, I think this song appeals to everyone. A little fun fact for you here, Melissa, from your episode last week, Paul Williams is also the writer of the theme for The Love Boat television show. Amazing. Paul Williams is a talented cat. The Rainbow Connection is one of the most recognizable songs in the world. It's known just about everywhere. It is originally, naturally, of course, performed by Kermit the Frog, but it's been covered by at least three dozen artists, including Wilsey Nelson, The Chicks, Judy Collins, Jason Mraz, Sarah McLaughlin, Weezer too. I I had no idea. Everyone loves this song. People find something very universal in the song. And the Rainbow Connection is a song that inspires hope in so many. So how does the Rainbow Connection come to be? Paul Williams has in the 70s done the music for Emmett Otter's jug band Christmas. He's funny, Paul Williams. He says he loves working with the Muppets because we're all about the same size. Paul Williams is very, he's short. (laughs) He thinks these are his kind of characters. And Jim Henson, who was really impressed by Paul's work on Emma Daughter's Jug Band Christmas. God, the genius of Jim Henson. He's looking to bring the Muppets to the big screen after the success of the Muppet show on television. Jim Henson will ask Paul Williams to do the music for the Muppet movie as well. And Paul Williams will call his friend Kenny Asher. And it's on. Paul Williams and Kenny Asher also wrote all of the songs for A Star is Born together back in 1976 for the film starring Barbara Streisand and Chris Christopherson. Talented pair. There's a wonderful piece that Paul Williams writes about Jim Henson. And it describes Jim as possessing the elegance of kindness. I want to talk about this and how it happens. It's so nice. That's a beautiful description. I'm taking an excerpt from that piece now. And Paul Williams is talking about going out on the 35th anniversary tour of the Muppet movie and being interviewed. And Paul Williams, I'm quoting him, will say, The interviews are all pretty much the same with questions about what it's like writing for felt creatures, having the big love song sung by a pig and the idea for Rainbow Connection and inevitably, what was Jim Henson like? 
He was gentle. He was funny. He had remarkable patience. And if you went to him with a really bad idea, he had the ability to slide past it so gently. You almost didn't notice the rejection in his sweet, no, that might not work. He was accessible and friendly, inventive and completely original. I think he was a genius. I've said all these things about him. And while they were true, I think they failed to properly describe the man. Then it occurred to me, Jim possessed the elegance of kindness. Now, in all honesty, the phrase first came to me in describing the way I was greeted by fellow alcoholics when I decided to get sober. It's a welcoming, sweet quality that I feel again and again among the recovering community. But sitting on my porch talking to WOR in New York or WJR in Detroit, it came tumbling out of my mouth as the perfect description of Jim. Jim Henson displayed the elegance of kindness. It was framed by his actions, which never seemed hurried. His humor could be remarkably edgy considering his sweet affect. His demeanor seemed to say, life is crazy and things go wrong, but in the end, somehow they'll work out. No need to worry. And of course, there's nothing to be angry about. I have a favorite story about Jim. There was an initial meeting at my house in the Hollywood Hills to discuss the film, the story of how the Muppets met and the songs that were needed. Walking Jim to his car, I told him that Kenny and I would not throw any surprises at him. We'd let him hear the songs as we worked on them. He answered with a smile and then said, oh, that's all right, Paul. I'm sure they'll be wonderful. I'll hear them in the studio when we record them. I'd never once before or since experienced such freedom. In the world of filmmaking and the costs involved, it's unheard of. But there in the street above Tinseltown, I was shown a level of trust that says more about Jim Henson than it does about Kenny Asher and I. Confident in the creative choices he made, he was willing to step back, allow the process to unfold without excessive control, and energized by his caring and respect, Kenny and I did our best work. His graciousness and the elegance of kindness he wore so well made knowing and working for Jim Henson a classic case of living with a master of gratitude and trust. So there is a meeting, right? With the two of them, Jim Henson and Frank Oz and Kenny and Paul Williams. And they're trying to center in on the movie and what the music should be about. And the makers are, Jim and Frank Oz, are explaining to the songwriters, here's the opening scene and here's Kermit in the swamp. And Kermit's looking for something a little different. There's a call to adventure and there's water and there's light and refraction and, oh, wow, rainbows, that sounds pretty good. Paul Williams will say, well, Rainbow Connection was the first number in the Muppet movie. It is the one that establishes the lead character. We find Kermit sitting in the middle of the swamp. Kenny Asher and I sat down to write these songs and we thought, Kermit is like every frog. He's the Jimmy Stewart of frogs. <laughs> That's a great comparison. So how do we show that he's a thinking frog and that he has an introspective soul and all that good stuff? We looked at his environment and his environment is water and air and light. And it just seemed like it 
would be a place where he would see a rainbow. But we also wanted to show that he would be on the spiritual path, examining life and the meaning of life. Paul Williams and Kenny Asher are looking to inspire in the Muppet movie in a similar vein. They use Pinocchio and When You Wish Upon a Star as their vision, their aim to try to instill that same feeling, a song that opens up your heart with some spiritual awareness about it. So how do they go about it? Paul Williams uses this term and it's so, so good. He says, we opened the song by writing themselves into a charitable corner. Okay. So it begins with a question, right? Why are there so many songs about rainbows and what's on the other side? Rainbows are visions, but only illusions and rainbows have nothing to hide. In the the charitable corner, in the opening line, they flat out denied there's anything special going on with rainbows. There's nothing to hide. There's nothing magical about them. Every bit of magic about rainbows is dispelled just in that opening line. But then the song goes on. So we've been told, and some choose to believe it, but I know they're wrong. Wait and see. Someday we'll find it. The rainbow connection, the lovers, the dreamers, and me. Someday we'll find it. It's not here. This is a seeking song. Kermit is a dreamer. And from the opening, we know that this frog does not have the answers. But this frog does have the questions and that call to something bigger for his life than the swamp. Yeah. Paul Williams will sum it up this way and say, hey, this is my philosophy. There's an immense power in faith. There is more beauty in the questions than in the answers. If you have a creative thought and someone to believe in what you're doing and you have an element of faith involved, we can do anything. It all begins with an amazing creative source if we are fortunate enough to tap into it. So speaking of tap into, this is remarkable. I do want to tell you, Melissa, about what happens when Jim comes in to hear the song for the first time. All that trust Jim Henson has given to Paul and Kenny. Yeah. And he comes in the studio and they're doing run-throughs and Jim comes in and sings the Rainbow Connection. And it's just not happening. And it is suggested to Jim Henson that maybe you pick up Kermit and let Kermit sing the song. And the rest is history. There is something incredible that happens to Jim Henson. There's a wonderful clip where he's being interviewed on Arsenio Hall many, many moons ago. And here's Jim, who's an ordinary, peaceful, chill kind of guy. And Arsenio asked to uh, speak to Kermit. And you can see Jim and Jim Henson's energy, everything entirely shift to assume that character that is nothing like the guy you just saw on that couch. He'll do the same thing with Rolf, the dog, in that same interview. Really, really incredible to watch. So here is to you, the Rainbow Connection. I will encourage all of you to listen to the entire wonderful song, no matter how long it has been since you've heard it. It is a little love letter in three minutes from the swamp, from Kermit's heart to yours and mine and all of our hearts. It's a song about faith, 
telling us that there's nothing really all that magical about rainbows. It is our belief in them, our belief in anything that connects us to our deeper self and all to each other. The song openly invites you to participate in asking your own questions. And those questions will be different for all of us. One thing Jim Henson will say, and I'm going to leave it with this, we aren't writing for children. We're writing for the child in all of us. That's beautiful. That reminded me that end of that quote from the Wizard of Oz, where Glinda, the good witch, says to Dorothy, you've always had the power, my dear. You just had to learn it for yourself. That's exactly it. The rainbow connection. What a delight of a love letter, Alicia. I am certainly going to go listen to that, the rainbow connection today. You want to go listen to it now. Just that opening banjo will swell your heart with all the love. Let's end on the love. Thanks, everybody, for listening to today's episode. As always, we're so grateful for you, for telling your friends, for your kind emails and reviews, too. So true. We're so grateful for you. Until we meet again on Thursday, darlings, stay in love. Thanks for listening to Love Letters 2, a Hemlock Creatives production. Feel like showing some love to Love Letters 2? We'd love it if you tell a friend or leave us a kind review or even come and visit us on social media. You can find us at Instagram or Facebook at Love Letters 2 Podcast. You can also reach out and email us at loveletters2podcast at gmail.com or visit our website at loveletters2podcast.com. Until we meet again in the next episode, darlings, stay in love.